compassion, trust, courage, innovation. The values of Temecula Valley Hospital. We proudly present TVH Health Chat. Here's Melanie Cole. Welcome to TVH Health Chat with Temecula Valley Hospital. I'm Melanie Cole and I invite you to listen in as we give you a little COVID-19 education, the history, transmission, and testing. This should be a fascinating episode. Joining us is Dr. Robert Vivi. He's the Medical Director of Temecula Valley Hospital Clinical Laboratory. Dr. Vivi, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Give us a little lesson on the history of COVID and the hallmarks and history of human pathogens. Tell us a little bit more about this virus and how did this happen? Sure. Okay. Well, it's actually, you know, I I think it's pretty fascinating history. The first documented cases of coronaviruses actually were not in humans. They were actually discovered in chickens back in 1931 up in uh, North Dakota. And they realized that these, these chickens had a very highly, highly contagious respiratory disease that they called avian infection bronchitis and very lethal. Between 40 and 90% of the chicken population, actually, when they got infected with this virus, they would end up dying from the virus. And they realized it was something new that they hadn't been dealing with before. They didn't quite know that it was a coronavirus at that time, but they did know that it was something that they hadn't actually seen before. But the symptoms actually are, are, are strikingly similar to what you see in humans. You know, they had shortness of breath and bad coughing, and they were very tired and listless. And like I said, you know, quite a few of them ended up dying from it. They they called it infectious bronchitis virus at the time. And then back in 1937, they were actually able to culture this particular virus. They didn't know yet, again, that it was a coronavirus because they just didn't have the technology to actually look at the virus with an electron microscope yet to see what the structure was. And then in the 1960s, they were actually performing studies on patients with a common cold. And they were trying to determine how these colds were transmitted and whether or not you could actually take cold virus from one person and put it into another and get them infected. So they put together these studies back in England and actually at the University of Chicago, they did some of this work also, where they would inoculate the nasal cavity of a healthy donor with fluid that they washed out of the nasal cavity of somebody that actually had a common cold and they were able to induce colds in the in the healthy volunteers. And what was interesting about that is they discovered that there was one patient, it was patient B814 for boy number 814, he was just the 814th person in that particular study, who got a cold, and when they looked at the virus itself that they were trying to grow, they realized that this was something new that they hadn't actually seen before, so it was something very novel. And then back probably 1965, 1966, they were able to actually culture uh, this virus. Again, it didn't have any properties of anything that they were used to seeing at that point. And then there was a second isolate that they discovered in 1966 out of the University of Chicago, which is one of the viral types that we're familiar with today that causes a common cold. But again, you know, they didn't know they were coronaviruses until 1967 when they were actually able to do electron microscopy uh, using a very powerful microscope that can actually, you know, look at submicroscopic particles. And they were actually able to see that these viruses had this round shape with these spikes that came off of the surface that to the researchers at that time reminded them of what the corona of the sun looked like. And that's when they actually named them coronaviruses based on that structure that they could see on electron microscopy. 
so that was when they got their name. Uh, so yeah, pretty fascinating, right? So the, there are actually four subtypes of coronaviruses that cause colds that were all infected with on a fairly regular basis. About 15 to 20% of common colds are caused by coronaviruses, and we've been living with these things, you know, for, for centuries. You get a little sniffle, you know, maybe you have a little bit of a sore throat, but they generally don't, you know, really cause any severe pathology in the patient. And we got along fine with them until 2002, really, was when something happened, actually. And back in 2002, between 2002 and 2004, there was a jump of a new coronavirus from the animal population into humans that occurred in China, and that was SARS. So you're probably familiar with uh, the SARS outbreak from back then. And that's also a coronavirus, and it's very similar to what we see now with the current coronavirus. In fact, they're so closely related that they have the same name. SARS viruses, SARS-CoV, and the coronavirus that we have now that, you know, we're all dealing with is SARS-CoV-2. So they're very closely related. And that was actually a pretty significant infection. There was about 8,000 cases worldwide, a little bit more than 8,000 cases worldwide, led to about 775 deaths. So it had a fairly high mortality rate. It was about 9.6%. And there were 27 cases reported in the United States at that time, but there were no deaths. And they got that under control because that was so explosive and it was easier, actually a lot easier to contain because it was mostly symptomatic people who were spreading the disease in healthcare facilities. So once they realized what was going on, they were sort of able to shut it down. And since 2004, there haven't really been any more cases of SARS, you know, the original SARS. And then again, everything was quiet for a while, and then another coronavirus jumped from animals into humans, and this was in 2012. In the Middle East, there was this coronavirus called MERS, caused Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and that actually jumped from camels in Saudi Arabia into the human population, and that that actually has the highest mortality rate of all the coronaviruses. So there were about 2,500 cases worldwide and about 875 deaths. So, you know, that mortality rate was close to about 34%, very high. There were two cases in the United States. Nobody died from it, and those are actually imported from Saudi Arabia for healthcare workers who were coming in to work in the United States. And then, of course, in 2019, COVID-19, or the current coronavirus, actually jumped again from an animal into humans somewhere in China, in that Wabe province in China, and it's just been spreading literally like wildfire since then. So right now, you know, in the United States, there's about 7.6 million infections, and we're at 213,000 deaths. And yeah, so that's kind of where we are with it. But but they're all they're all beta coronaviruses, SARS, MERS, and COVID-19, and they're all derived ultimately from bats. Uh, That's kind of the natural reservoir for these particular viruses. So now on to the recent coronavirus. Please tell us how this is transmitted, because there's been some confusion about whether it's airborne, aerosolized or not. Can you walk into one that might be floating in the air at the grocery store? How long do they live on surfaces? Tell us a little bit about the incubation period, because I think that this is the question on so many people's minds. Sure. So, well, let's start with the incubation period. The incubation period for COVID is about 14 days from the time you become 
exposed to the time you should develop symptoms. So if you don't develop symptoms after 14 days from exposure, you're likely not going to. So as far as transmission, the virus is transmitted predominantly through respiratory droplets. So close contact with people, you know, being within six feet of them if they don't have their, their face mask on. When you breathe and you exhale and you speak, you're uh, emitting little uh, particles from your lungs that have water vapor in them, and the virus actually gets trapped in that water vapor. So that's the primary mode of, of transmission, and, and those, you know, those particles are actually large, and they'll fall to the ground. What was debatable or what was debated for a while was whether or not it could be transmitted airborne. And airborne transmission means that it's, the particles are so small that they become aerosolized and they can just kind of float in the air. And as I said, there was some debate early on whether or not that could happen under normal circumstances. We, we know that that can actually happen in a hospital, right? So if you go into the hospital and you have certain procedures, they're going to create aerosols which can actually put that virus up into the air. There is also some evidence now that the virus actually can be aerosolized sort of out in the environment when people are in close quarters and they're doing things like singing or screaming or yelling. So being inside and in close contact with one another actually is a high risk for transmitting the disease because of aerosolization. But again, predominantly, it's going to be from those respiratory droplets. It can actually stick to surfaces as well. Early on, they, you know, they weren't sure how long it could survive on surfaces. The thinking now is that it can survive probably for a couple hours on surfaces before it actually dries out and it's not infectious anymore. On your skin, if you don't do anything to clean your skin, actually a recent study that I just read the other day actually said that these things can survive on skin for up to, you know, up to about nine hours. But if you use soap and water or an alcohol-based cleanser, it'll clean it off. So I want to talk more about the hand-washing aspect of this versus sanitizer, but asymptomatic carriers seem to be a big mystery with this virus. Dr. Vivi, if they stay home with no contact, how many days would they be... How do we even know if they're asymptomatic? How would somebody know unless we're testing them? And if we're not, are they just walking around spreading this virus. Tell us about asymptomatic carriers, because that seems to be one of the very biggest mysteries. Yeah, so uh, actually, the, probably the majority of diseases spread from asymptomatic carriers. About 70 to 80 percent of people who become exposed to the virus and can actually carry the virus are asymptomatic. About 20 percent of the people who are exposed will actually develop symptoms. And of the patients who develop symptoms, about 15% or so will have mild symptoms and the other 5% or so, maybe a little bit more, will have, you know, severe symptoms or, or become critical. And it's really that, you know, severe symptom and critical patient population that impacts the hospital because, those, you know, those patients get hospitalized. But as far as the asymptomatics, the vast majority of people actually who are infected with it are going to be asymptomatic. And you're right, you, you would never know uh, if you have the virus, if you're asymptomatic, unless you get tested, which is why we really are trying to encourage people to get testing, you know, frequently. This way, if they are found to be positive, they will actually quarantine at home. And, you know, the current CDC guidelines are uh, that if you've come in contact with somebody 
this gets a little bit confusing, but you know all the information is there on the CDC website if anybody is interested in reading it. Uh, it does get a little bit confusing, but if you are asymptomatic and you think you might have been exposed to somebody who has COVID, but you haven't been tested, the recommendation is to stay home for at least 14 days because of that incubation period that we spoke about earlier. If you're asymptomatic and you have tested positive for COVID, but you're still asymptomatic, the recommendations are to quarantine at home for at least 10 days from the time of your first positive test. And then after 10 days, as long as you're fever-free for 24 hours and you're not taking any fever-reducing medicines, and you're, you know, you wouldn't be taking fever-reducing medicines if you were asymptomatic because you're asymptomatic. But the recommendation is, you know, 10 days and then fever-free, and then you can stop your self-isolation. So then tell us a little bit about the hand washing and testing as well, because there's so much for us to cover, Dr. Vivi, but... Tell us why hand washing briefly, why this works versus sanitizer, which kills this. But for some reason, the soap, what it breaks it down, the fat, it breaks it down. Tell us a little bit about why that happens. Yeah. So I think what happens with, you know, with the sanitizers, the sanitizers, the hand sanitizers, those alcohol-based sanitizers are actually put into a solution that actually makes them a little bit viscous. So they, you know, sticks to your skin. And after a while, if you keep rubbing that on your skin, they actually become less effective. Soap and water, on the other hand, you know, will just clean everything off of your hands and it's it's really is just sort of the best way to go in terms of you know cleaning the virus and those viral particles off your hand. <clears throat> now, the other uh, thing with sanitizers is that uh, some of the hand sanitizers are contaminated with alcohols that actually can cause harm. So denatured alcohols and methanols can actually cause harm to you. So you have to be pretty careful about looking at what the ingredients are in those particular sanitizers. So the best thing to do really is to just wash your hands with soap and water. Now let's talk about testing briefly because I know that this is one of the keys, right? So speak about testing and the antibody test. If you were to tell somebody right now, Dr. Vivi, I think if you have questions, you should get tested or you should get tested for the antibodies. Tell us what you would do, what you would tell people and really what the difference in these two tests are. Sure. So, so testing is really centered around uh, a couple of things. One is, do you want to know whether or not you currently have the virus, or do you want to know if you've been exposed to the virus? So the, the main way that we're testing now for the presence of the virus is either doing what's called uh, PCR, which is a test that actually looks for the genetic code or part of the genetic code of the virus. It's very specific. It's very sensitive. And the other thing we can do is what's called antigen testing, where we're looking for certain proteins that are on the surface of the virus. Either one of those, either the antigen test or the PCR-based tests, are designed to look for virus in the sample itself. The antibody tests are actually designed to look for your response to the virus. So the problem with the antibody test is that it doesn't tell you if you're actively infected. And the PCR test and the antigen test doesn't tell you whether or not you actually have any response to the virus, right? So, so really, they're sort of complementary to one another. So if you were curious if you were currently infected, you would do either the antigen or the PCR test. 
if you were curious that you might have been infected sometime in the past, you know, three, four weeks ago, maybe two months ago, then you would want to do the antibody test. Now, the thing that the antibody test doesn't tell you, at least the current antibody tests that are on the market, they don't tell you whether or not you actually have immunity to the disease because they're not specifically looking for antibodies that will actually neutralize the virus. That's a different type of a test that's called a neutralization antibody test. And currently, there's nothing on the market available, commercially at least, for people to know whether or not they have neutralizing antibodies. And the way to do those tests is very cumbersome, it's very expensive, and it's just not feasible to test everybody for neutralization at this point. So I think part of your question also is, you know, if somebody asked me what I would do about the antibody test, again, I would say it really depends on what you're curious about. If you want to know if you're infected right now, antibody testing isn't going to tell you that. And the other thing about the antibody test is it takes about 10 to 14 days from the time you were exposed to the virus until those antibodies will actually rise to a detectable level with the current technology. So it's just not going to tell you whether or not you have an active infection. And what about contact tracing? Is that important to do? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So the point of contact tracing is if somebody tests positive for coronavirus, since it's so infectious, right, it's basically spread from person to person through the air, you want to make sure that that particular person and anybody else that they've come in contact with is found and isolated so that they can stop the transmission among that particular group. You know, you could imagine if if I'm infected and I came in contact with, you know, five other people around the time when I became infected, those other five people might be infected from me and then they would go on to infect other people. So the idea behind contact tracing is I find out I'm positive, I tell the contact tracers, everybody that I've been in contact with, and then they reach out to them to see who they've been in contact with and convince everybody, you know, in a perfect world to, you know, just isolate for 14 days at home. And if everybody did that, you'd really would shut down the spread and the transmission of the disease. Do you think there will be a second wave? And if so, are we ready, Dr. Vivi, as we wrap up? How should we prepare for a possible second wave if you think that there is going to be one? You have so much knowledge. Share it with the with the listeners right now about COVID, what you would like us to know about what's happening right now, what could happen in two weeks or four weeks or six months. Tell us your best advice and what you think we should do to prepare if there's going to be a second wave. Sure. So, you know, as far as first wave, second wave, I like to think of this as this is just one big wave. (laughs) You know, it hasn't disappeared. It's slowing down in some parts of the country. It's rising in other parts of the country. So I I personally don't like to think of it in terms of waves. I I think, you know, we're in the middle of it. We, in some places, it's in a little bit of a lull. In other places, it's expanding. What I'm concerned with, though, is that as we move into the fall, as the temperatures drop around the country and people start moving back inside uh, and and come in close contact with one another, we're going to see increased rates of transmission again, especially if if people, you know, don't wear masks, 
and if they can't figure out a way to keep their distance from one another. So, you know, my concern is that, you know, over the next few months, we're actually going to see a rise in cases again. So it becomes, you know, very important as people are moving indoors for work and school and and all the other activities that, you know, everybody wants to engage in, that they just keep wearing a mask to try to cut down on that transmission as much as possible. As far as six months from now, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball. You know, most of this is really going to be determined by whether or not we have a safe and effective vaccine and also how long it may take for that vaccine to be deployed to everybody in the country. Remember, there's there's 330, 340 million people in the country, and as of now, we only have 7.6 million documented cases. So the vast majority of people still at least either haven't been tested or haven't been exposed. It's probably a little combination of both. So um, I would anticipate that we'll see a rise in infections through the fall and the winter months. And then, you know, as that vaccine comes out and gets deployed, uh, we should see it come under control. But uh, I still think it's going to take a while. And just let me reiterate, please, you know, wash your hands, wear your mask, be cognizant of, of social distancing and keep each other safe. Thank you so much, Dr. Vivi. Really such an interesting episode and you gave us so much education about this virus that has been such a mystery to so many of us and really some really great advice. So thank you so much for that. And that concludes this episode of TVH Health Chat with Temecula Valley Hospital. Please visit our website at TemeculaValleyHospital.com for more information and to get connected with one of our providers. Please also remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other Temecula Valley Hospital podcasts. Physicians are independent practitioners who are not employees or agents of Temecula Valley Hospital. The hospital shall not be liable for actions or treatments provided by physicians. I'm Melanie Cole.